Milwaukee, January 10th, 1883. Chaos ensues as Milwaukee's signature hotel, the Newhall House, burns in the frozen night sky. Of the 300 people in the hotel that night, over 70 are killed in what is still today the deadliest fire in Milwaukee's storied history. Ten years later, its successor opens just a few blocks away from the New Hall's location. In recent years, the Fister Hotel has become much more famous for its unseen guests and is widely known as one of the most haunted hotels in America and easily claiming its place amongst the sites on our list in part two of Wisconsin's Most Haunted. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this, the Halloween edition, episode 14 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with your other host, Mickey Sanders. I'm the other host. So we are entering into part two of our top 10 Wisconsin most haunted sites, as brought to you by... The most popular searches that you can find online. I was waiting for a commercial. Definitely not Mickey and my list. But, you know, again, some of these have validity to them. Some of these do deserve to be on this list. Some, as we've stated in the beginning, maybe not so much. But at the end of this, we'll go over and I think we'll give our opinions on what we're talking about over both in episode one, where we talked about five sites. And then today we're going to talk about the other five. Six. The Fister Hotel in Milwaukee, probably the most famous building on this list. It is Milwaukee's finest hotel, without question. Milwaukee's finest hotel was once called the grandest hotel of the West. So when it was built, Milwaukee did not have a signature hotel. Now, when you, when you, if you were a city worth anything in those days, if you didn't have a signature hotel, you weren't a city. Our hotels are much more than hotels, you know, and they kind of are today too, but they were where everything happened in the city, right? They were the social gathering places. That's where the, the business meetings took place. You had to have a signature hotel if you were a city. Now, in 1888... You mentioned that in your first book a lot, actually. That's why a lot of hotels were built, because you had to... A lot of it was just to showcase your city. 
It wasn't even because you needed a hotel for people to stay at, but they still needed that hotel to show the world that you were a real city, right? Worth worth visiting and staying in. Yeah. So in 1888, Milwaukee was without a signature hotel because the one that they had, and they did have one, burned down in uh, in 1883 it was called the new hall house and that was built in in the 1850s so that you know milwaukee did have a signature hotel that was built in the 1850s and in 1883 it burned down one of the most horrific fires of the day it was the uh deadliest hotel fire the the nation had ever seen up to that point 75 people were killed in the new hall house fire tom thumb remember mickey when we talked about Tom Thumb, he was in that hotel on that day, and he actually survived that fire. I think we actually mentioned it in that episode. We did, and if you want to listen to the Haunchyville episode, Tom Thumb, the uh, the famous dwarf Man, circus Man, are we tying show. shit together in this episode? Right. What? Tom well, Thumb was actually in the Newhall House Hotel. What comes around goes around, baby. When it burned down in 1883. So in 1888, a prominent Milwaukee businessman, Guido Fister. Guido. Guido. Is that the greatest name? Guido, Guido Fister and his son Charles. Right. So Guido was a, you know, he was a German immigrant and it, and really, who wasn't a German immigrant in Milwaukee? Especially when your name is Guido. Right. So he's a prominent uh, businessman. He owned a tannery and was doing very, very well for himself. And he actually purchased his plot of land in 1871 with thoughts of, even before the Newhall House fire, with thoughts of then, at one day, building a grand hotel for the city of Milwaukee. And then, you know, in 1888, when Milwaukee didn't have that hotel, he he, he built it. You know, he actually put the ball uh, in play to start building this hotel in his vision. So when they, they built this hotel, now Guido passes away before the hotel is, is built. You know, it's his before vision. Before it even, be, before construction began. Right, right. It, you know, it, it's, it's his vision. They're working with an architect to get it how he wants it. He passes away. His son Charles and his daughter Louise. Um, are now stuck with this vision and, and moving on with it. And they saw it through. and They, they, they did an excellent job. They it. built it. Grander than the new hall ever was. Obviously, it had massive Romanesque stone columns, arches. It was the most lavish hotel of its time, costing more than $1 million back then. And it featured groundbreaking innovations like fireproofing, electricity throughout the hotel, and individual thermostat control in every room, which is, you know, pretty nice now. But back then, which was just, that was literally just invented like months prior. Right. That wasn't even in the original plans. And of that's the part of the million dollar yeah. cost. What is a million dollars in 1883? Back money? Th- Dude, a million dollars now is a lot of right. money. I, that, don't, I don't know what the 20, maybe cow. 30 million. I don't know what it would be. Right. I, I, I can't even do the math. Yeah. So obviously, this was the lap of luxury. It had lavish furnishings, Victorian art all over the place. Um, it had a huge four-story skylight. Like the the ceiling of the lobby was a massive skylight. You know, and again in 1888, this was this, you don't see this stuff. It know? also housed the largest Victorian art collection of any hotel in the world, collected by owner Guido and son Charles. The largest Victorian art collection of any hotel in the world, right here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Marble columns, crystal chandeliers, the whole gamut. I mean, this was the bee's knees, as the cool kids say. The cat's pajamas. Now, in the 1920s, it went through a pretty major renovation. It's already 40 years old at this time. 
right? The glass ceiling, the skylight was replaced with a vaulted ceiling. Some of the lounges that they had were considered dated at that time, so they updated them. So pretty major renovation in the 1920s. One of the very first events that it hosted was the Wisconsin Republican Party Convention, and it, it was visited by some of the most powerful people in the world, including, at the time, in 1897, President William McKinley. So, I mean, the biggest names in the world, and especially the country, would come, and when they stayed here, that's where they stayed. And still today, it's been visited. Every president has stayed there from McKinley, who was the first, through, I believe, Donald Trump, with the exception of Barack Obama. Barack Obama did not uh, stay there. But every president from McKinley on um, until Obama stayed in this hotel. Now, by the time you get to the 1950s, by 1950, you know, all the original players are gone, right? The, the Fisters are gone. Charles and, and Louise are gone. The original builders have now passed on. And, you know, again, as we talked about, the dreaded but predictable long, slow decline into disrepair happens. It's sold several times, several times to out-of-state investors who don't care about anything, right? They don't care about Milwaukee. They're looking to rent it. They're looking to make it into low-income housing. They're making in, looking into uh, make it into senior living, whatever they can do to make a buck off it, right? And nothing is working. So this isn't making money anymore. It's falling into disrepair. It's going to cost a lot of money, right, to renovate the place. As, um, you know, by the 1950s, it's already 75 years old or so. So, uh, but this is what happened with these old buildings. We see it here in Wisconsin or here in Appleton, too, where, you know, the old hotels that we had, the Sherman House here in Appleton, eventually turns into low-income housing. And, you know, the next thing on the docket is demolition. And this Fister house was slated to be demolished. Until? Until in 1962. I tried to say it like a theater would. In a world <laughs> where Ben Marcus. Ben Marcus, founder of Marcus Corporation. Saves the building. He buys it. And, uh, you know, in 1962, he has this grand plan that he wants to buy the Fister and him and a group of investors, it right. wasn't just him. But. And, and, and turn it into um, the grand hotel that it used to be, and he did. He added a 125-room tower on the back of it. He 23 stories. Uh, you know, and this, this renovation was millions of dollars, obviously. And while they were doing this, they discovered in the lobby that it was even more open than what it, they thought because, some, you know, a lot of it had been cordoned off by drywall. Some of the stuff they did in this, you know, the, the mid-century with this Art Deco stuff, um, you know, we you, you see it in buildings, and old stone buildings were covered up with faux fronts that buildings would put up a lot. And even in these in these hotel lobbies, they would cover stuff up with drywall. They pulled the carpet up, and they found all the the original marble on the floor. They ca- they carpeted over the marble. Can you like, believe why, that like, happens? Like, what what are you doing? I I I find it ridiculous when they carpet over original hardwood, right. which is beautiful, but marble. Mar- the original marble floors, they put carpet over. How is that so, a decision anybody makes? So then they, you know, they pull the carpet up and they see the marble. Not only do they see the marble floor, but they see that it was crushed. Like the marble floor had been crushed because they're, you know. They're, oh, I thought you meant crushed marble. Like, oh. No, no, that's, no. Like it was. That's different. It was shot to hell. Yeah. So they had to rip all the original marble floors. Some of it, I think just in front of the fireplace in the in the lobby, is the original marble floor, which was not damaged. 
But other than that, everything was damaged. They had to yank it out. So his idea was to revitalize this hotel, and he did it tenfold. He didn't only revitalize the hotel. That really revitalized downtown Milwaukee. You know, imagine downtown Milwaukee today without the Fister. You can't, you know, so... Ben Marcus, you don't, you know, and this happened in 1962, which is really before the preservation movement, which didn't really hit until the 70s. You know, we look at mid-century, you know, we look at the, the, the stuff we tore down just so crass-like in the 50s and 60s. We didn't even think about it. You know, we just tore stuff down for frivolous reasons. Now, you know, buildings still get torn down, obviously, but we, you know, at least we have a conversation about it, right? At least we try to preserve things when we can today. They didn't then. So kudos to Ben Marcus. Before the preservation moment movement even happened, he had it in mind to do this. Now, there was a big penthouse, obviously, on top of that tower, which they brought in National Axe. Um, it became, when the Brewers came here in 1971, 1970, 1971, whenever they came here, they the Fister became the hotel where all the Major League Baseball players stayed. Hence, And basketball teams when they're in town. My point is that's where all the professional teams, right. teams stay now when they're visiting the Bucks or the Brewers. You know, it's really because of Major League Baseball, I think, that the Fister is known to be as haunted as it is. Because for decades, Major League Baseball players have been complaining that they're getting messed with by the unseen. Adrian Beltre, then playing for the LA Dodgers, claimed in, a, in an SI interview, Sports Illustrated, that he heard knocking on a hallway door and found nobody there when he opened it. Later, he saw air conditioning and TV switch on and off by themselves. While he was sleeping, he was awakened by pounding noises behind his headboard. And he said he was so scared that he took his bet. This is Adrian Beltre. This is a big dude. said he was so scared he took his bat to bed with him and only slept for two hours of the three-night stay that they were there. And Carlos Gomez was another guy who ended up being a brewer, but while he was still with the Twins before he came here, uh, before coming to the Brewers, as I said, he heard disembodied voices and saw his iPod switch go on by itself. The iPod then vibrated wildly and almost fell on the floor, so he moved it to the center of the table, and it started to move, vibrating all by itself again. So... This is a guy who was actually on the Brewers saying this stuff. This is from uh, an article, and it's called American Ghost Walks. In May of 2009, the Palm Beach Post revealed that whenever the Florida Marlins stay at the Fister, at least four players demand to double up and share rooms for the fear of ghosts. <laughs> they need to be together. Later that spring, Brendan Ryan of the St. Louis Cardinals reported seeing a strange apparition at the Fister. He said a moving light passed through his room, followed by a temperature drop that chilled him to the bone. Then in June of 2009, Pablo Sandoval of the San Francisco Giants divulged that one night during his stay, he awoke at 3 a.m. and witnessed the hotel room door open and shut on its own. Then on July 6, 2010, Pablo Sandoval of the Giants returned. He and teammate Edgar Renteria made news when they abandoned the rest of their team to avoid reliving the previous year's frights, and they checked into a nearby Intercontinental. These are some of the biggest names in baseball at the time. This is I had these guys on my fantasy baseball team, and they're saying, speaking of fantasies, that they're afraid of the crap that's going on so here. So this is from this year. This is from <laughs> May of this year. Quote, Braves lose power at supposedly haunted Milwaukee Hotel. The Atlanta. This is May sixteenth, twenty twenty two. The Atlanta Braves woke up to an extended power outage at their hotel in downtown Milwaukee on Monday, and also left some without running water. Some players were unable to shower at the Fister, which is already infamous among ball players for allegedly being haunted. Bryce Harper, Michael Young, and Pablo Sandoval 
are among players who have claimed encounters with ghosts at the 129-year-old hotel. On Monday, the Braves were more concerned with light switches. I went into the bathroom and turned the light on, and it didn't happen, Braves manager Brian Snitker said prior to the team's game against the Brewers Monday night. By mid-morning, I was thinking if I don't hurry up and get in the shower, all the hot water is going to be gone, and it was. I took a cold shower, but I had water, and other parts of the place, the water went out and the power went out. So still this year, in, 20, in 2022, this is still going on. Or these these baseball players. These are well-known players. I mean, the, every one of these names we've mentioned, I am very familiar with myself, and I'm not even that big of a baseball fan any longer, but goes to show that even regular people, staff and guests alike, have claimed that second floor is completely haunted. Having And they, they claim that they've seen Charles Fister himself appearing on the grand staircase up to the second floor like he goes up and down the stairway. And it, again... These apparitions aren't even necessarily evil or looking to do harm, but it, these are things that people have seen, and it's multiple testimonies saying that this is true. So, and it's always yeah, the, it's, it's conventional wisdom is that it's Charles Fister, right. like haunting his hotel. Like I guess not, you know maybe not some even, of that, even not but, even like in a bad way, but just right. keeping track of it. I know? guess my like is he doing all that? I guess my you know I would kind of look at. The new hall that burned down was just literally two blocks away. Seventy-five people died in that. There were people that jumped from the from the top floor of that building because it was so hot. Obviously, we can compare that to what we know happened at nine eleven. Um, but they they jumped to an alley to their death because the fire was so hot. That alley is still there. It's, so what are you getting at? Still, that you know what if it's what if it's these souls from from the new hall. That died in that hotel, and right people you know, uh, people try to to jump to a conclusion as and the most logical conclusion. Well, it must be the original owner, but like you said, spirits are spirits, and there's no way to prove any of them anyway. But even if you see it, an aberration, it doesn't mean you know who it is, especially when it was a hundred plus right. years ago. Right. I just I just think you know that that hotel that burned down that was the grandest hotel in Milwaukee when it burned down. And all those people died. That you know, was a maybe, horrific thing. Yeah, like maybe they're there now. Right. Because that was... Because typically, from what we've learned and what you've seen yourself, the, these spirits do exist after some horrific, catastrophic situation happened. Right. If it's intelligent hauntings at all, we have no idea. You know, it's a lot of electrical stuff going on there. And with all the renovations that this building has had, to think that they're just mundane electrical issues going on is not... Probably likely. Well, you use that you term, know? intelligent hauntings. What exactly? I mean, it's an intelligent being attached to it, meaning it, it like a, a residual haunting would be like a energy that just keeps the repeating energy, okay. itself. An intelligent haunting would, would be, be that a it's story, a being, right? that it's a per, you know, the spirit of a there's ghost There's a history or behind it, right. right? Okay. Sarah, Sarah. Shaker's Cigar Bar, staying in Milwaukee, just a little bit south of the Fister, in what's known as Walker's Point neighborhood, is Shaker's Cigar Bar, known as one of the five most haunted bars in the nation. Uh, the Huffington Post actually named it number five in its top five bars in America. It's a very cool place. Been there. It is gorgeous inside. 
It's all renovated to look like a 1920s speakeasy. None of the stuff is original inside of it. You know, but if you don't know that stuff, you wouldn't know by walking in there. When you walk into that place, you're like, wow, this place is really cool. Now, it was, it, well, it was built in 1894 as a cooperage, which I looked up because I didn't know that word. Is a premises for person trying to make wooden casks, barrels, vats, buckets, tubs, troughs, and other similar containers from timber staves, usually heated or steamed to make them pliable. It was built as a cooperage, as I just described, for the Schlitz Brewing Company right. in 1894. Which was, at that time, the Schlitz was the biggest brewery in the world. Schlitz. So, the, yeah, right. This is where they built their, what do you want to call them, crates? Uh, casks or whatever to, Vats, to, buckets, to barrels, ship it. Yeah, right. This is what this is where they built their their casks to to ship their beer, um, and it was that for a while, and then it became a coal and gas distribution center, and then you know it was a, it it was several things until the 1920s, when this was purchased by here we go again, Al Capone, and you know a lot of the research and here this is where I and Frank and Ralph his well, brothers supposedly Frank was it was, Frank was pretty much dead already at this time right, so most true. of the research you see says Frank and that's not correct it's, even it's, that's bunkness right it's Alan it's Alan Ralph would have bought it because they used it they they used this to run their soda bottling operation during prohibition well and before we go too Ralph. much further right but before we go the the building was constructed, surrounding land was used as a cemetery for a number of indigenous natives of the city. So this, right off the bat, this land had some history that could be considered dark or at least attributed to the not living. I think it was one of the one of the two original cemeteries in Milwaukee or what became Milwaukee. I mean, I think that the cemetery itself predated Milwaukee. The third ward of Milwaukee. Right. So it was, I mean, it, it's been there a while, but a long time. Yeah. yeah. So it it yeah purchased in the 1920s by Al Capone, which I believe is, and I have not done all of the research on this, but and we'll get into why. I certainly want to. I do believe this to be true. I do believe Al uh, Capone did own this building, and he did run it with Ralph as a soda as soda bottling plant all the way into the 1940s. You know, and Ralph spent a lot of time up here. Well, Obviously, they, they called it a soda bottle. Well, sure, it was a front for for what they. It was actually a legit business. I mean, right, they, they sure. did run a legit soda business, but it, that was always the front, of for course. Yeah. Easy with a brothel, yeah. right? So the the cemetery that we were just talking about, those the same thing that happened when we were talking about Riverside Cemetery in Appleton when the city of Milwaukee was expanding. They had to get those bodies out of there. And, but it was only if you could pay for it. If it was only if you could afford to move your dead family member out of that cemetery and reinturn them somewhere else. Um, and if you couldn't, guess what? You're still there. They're building on top of you. So again, here we are. There's still bodies likely in that, well, what is now downtown Milwaukee. There's still bodies under that building because you were... You know, if you couldn't pay to get out of there, you're you're still there. After the Capones were out of there and after it was a brothel in 1946, it had gone through several inclinations, inclinations since then, mainly always a tavern um, of some form or another, but falling into disrepair again. Again, it's the same story over and over with these buildings. In 1986, it was bought by Bob Weiss, who remains the owner today. He renovated it, put a ton of money in it, it's the only licensed cigar bar in Milwaukee today. It's the only place in Milwaukee where you can smoke inside. Again, cool place. So he purchases a building. He starts renovating it. And then the ghost stories start. 
contractors, you know, right when they start renovating it, contractors are already talking about stuff going on. Tools are missing. You know, they hear footsteps. They see shadows. One of the supposedly famous ghosts in the building is that of a little girl, which haunts the first floor women's bathroom. And what, what they believe this is, is in the cemetery or outside the cemetery, there was an apple orchard. And an eight-year-old girl, again, predating this building, this is when there was a cemetery there, was climbing the tree to get apples, and she falls out of the tree, breaks her neck, and dies. And her name was Elizabeth. And she is said to be haunting this building today. She's been seen and felt and heard a lot in, uh, in, in claims made by um, visitors to the place. Very sweet and playful spirit in comparison to the other spirits that haunt the place. The least fear of people. People have heard a little girl's voice or laughter and faucets will turn off and on. Uh, even a stall door she supposedly loves to play with uh, will open while people are even in the restroom. And she's also known to move items around specifically near the entrance to the restroom. So she's a mischievous little girl, and, but very playful and, and sweet and not evil in any way. So now when the Capones owned this building and it was a brothel, the penthouse, the top floor was a penthouse, and this is where their, quote, A girl would live. Obviously the girl that brings in the most money as the sex worker. Now remember when we did our Northwoods Vice episode, in the Northwoods is where they would train their B girls, Right. So the A-girls is what they became when they were moved out of Hurley and brought down to the bigger cities like Milwaukee. The major talent. The major talent, sure. So one girl who was the A-girl at the time in the 1920s was a girl, 16 year, 16, 16 year old named Molly Brennan. 16 when she was brought there. That's well, 16 when she was the A-girl, so right. I don't know right. when. Right, you that's know, true. Which which matches up with Hurley, too, because remember when that when they were busted by the FBI, they said all those girls were 15 to 17 right. years old. But she's become major talent by the age of 16. By so 16, she is the, quote, A-girl. So she is living in that penthouse on the top floor and bringing in a lot of money to this facility, right? She's eventually murdered in a jealous rage by... Her then boyfriend. Actually, he was an ex by then. Ex boyfriend. Patrick. And uh, it is thought that he burned her body in the in the fireplace, and then buried her. Now, during renovations in two thousand one, Bob Weiss found bones under the floorboards in the penthouse that he called in charred bones. Right, and he called in the medical examiner. And, he's, and, and they were gone. They had them in their possession, I think, for about seven or eight weeks. And they brought them back to him. And they were indeed human burn, human bones of a female, approximately, I think it was 15 to 20 years old. Late teens to early 20s. And they had been there approximately 70 years. Now, Milwaukee's cold case unit goes back 50 years. So they don't they do they don't deal with this at all, and they basically give him back the bones and uh, and say do what you want with them. So now, you know he has that was the reason they gave, they because they could have persisted if if he chose to go further, but they basically said if if you don't care, we don't care. So they believe this to be Molly Brennan who was killed. Um, she was eighteen at the time when she was murdered. So now there's also two bodies in the floor 
supposedly two bodies in the floor in the basement. And when you go down in the basement, there is, and I've seen it, there is uh, an area on the floor which is quite different from the rest of the floor. And it looks like that it fits right about two bodies, two adult bodies, and it was then cemented over again. They used ground penetrating radar. They brought in professionals, which is not cheap, by the way. No. I mean, the, he, the, if you're going to burn in uh, GP, GPR, you're spending a lot of money, and you're doing it because you have a strong belief that there's things going on underneath your your premises. Ground penetrating radar cannot tell you that it's a body down there. It can't. It doesn't show objects. It just sh- it just tells you that the the ground is disturbed. It recognizes something different than what it would normally see. So he again he he brought it looks like that's a grave. So again he brought Milwaukee PD in and basically Milwaukee PD said, you know, we can dig it up if you want. But again, these are going to be older than 50 years old and there's nothing we're going to do about it. So he decided to leave them in there. So those, if they are indeed bodies, they're still there today. And you can go you can tour this place. You can go down and you can see where those supposed bodies lay. And I don't know if it's a grave or not. But like I said, I have seen it. I have met Bob Weiss. I've spoken to him. Interesting guy. I don't know if they're bodies. With the history of this place, you know, knowing that the Capones owned it. We all know what kind of guys the Capones were. Human bones already being found in the building and other places. Are those bodies there? I'm not going to say they're not. So now the interesting thing about this place is... is you know, as, a, as opposed to some of the other places that we've talked about who kind of dismiss their their uh, haunted history, Bob Weiss, to say he embraces it would be an understatement. I mean, they hold ghost tours every day in this place. and Including there's... a Cream City Cannibal Tour, which is based on the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a patron. Right, he, he, used to, he used to, he was a regular at, uh, at the bar when he hung out in downtown. Uh, Milwaukee. There's various ghost tours you can do. Um, you could also, up until very recently, sleep in the penthouse where Molly Brennan lived and was possibly killed. And that is not on their website anymore, so I'm not sure what happened to that. But I know up until even very recently, up through COVID, I know you could you could rent that room out. It's not a it's not a hotel. You can't. You, it's not a hotel. But it it was basically an Airbnb where you could rent that room out and slit and stay there, and you know they say that only twenty percent or so of the people that actually do that stay there right. because the rest of them just get scared and they get freaked out they and they wind up leaving in the middle of the night. But but they rent it out for that purpose just to kind of spook sure you if you're willing to go and get spooked. But most people can't even stay the night. You know, by all means, like I said, I've been to Shakers. I've not done. There's various tours that you can do. I've done the very basic one, and this was. 10 years ago or so maybe so i haven't been there recently but i remember it well and it's a very cool place i think that's something mickey you and i could do also is head down right. to shakers i, I and would check love this it out it's and, really supposed to be a really well lit up place and like you said it's it's ornate and it's beautiful on the inside and it's, it's kind of based on the old um decoration from way back when it was originally built it, right. It's just supposed to have an amazing feel, according to what I've read and what you're saying. I, I'd love to go there, man. That'd be amazing. And th- there's also, you know, with with any other place, even though I like this place a lot, you gotta you gotta check the history, right? And there is 
the whole story about Elizabeth, the little girl doesn't check document. You, you can't, there's nothing corroborating that. And he got, he gets the name Elizabeth and the story of her falling out of a tree from psychics. So, hmm. uh, you know, I'm going to question that just like I question everything. I didn't any, mean to any, mockingly laugh anything when you said else, But, well, you know, you can only go with what you can, it is, in my opinion, you can only really go with the history of what you can corroborate. And I do know? believe psychics see things, but a lot of times it seems as though they say things that are just so general that you can spin it in any direction you want. Now, this doesn't discount the the claims of a little girl haunting the place, right. which are constant. Right. I mean, people go to this place and you hear these same claims over and over again about a little girl around the women's bathroom. That's this, not discounting that. But the whole Elizabeth thing, a little girl falling out of a tree, I don't I don't know about right. that. Right, and, it's, and it's, it's a playful spirit, so it's not even people are complaining about it, but especially the Molly Brennan. And apparently it wasn't just her and her boyfriend that were killed. There was an actual doorman or a bouncer named sam that was killed in that whole scenario too so i mean that sounds like a legitimate story where you would think that there's actual spirits behind it there there and there's also the adding on to that the legend that after patrick killed molly he was then taken out by capone's minions so i don't know about that i haven't documented that or i haven't researched that i don't know if that's true or not but there's a whole history to Shaker Cigar Bar that is really shrouded in mystery. And this is where, you know, what we talked about before, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of truth to legend. This building would be the embodiment of that, where the Capones were there. They ran a speakeasy out of that place. That's true. Human bones were found in the building. That's true. It looks like there's a grave of two other ones in the basement. That's true. All that is true. But to right? which, to, to what degree does it? Right. Does the truth go to? Right. So, but definitely worth checking into. All that truth alone is intriguing enough. To, I mean, it sounds like a cool place, whether all that stuff existed or not, and the history of it. It's it's an old place, but with all that, whether you're gonna see your feel. But it sounds like when you enter the building and you go to these places or these certain corners of the building, you're going to feel a presence or just just a feeling. And, and maybe that's in your head already or whatever, but it just sounds like an amazing experience. Right. Go, go check it out. It's a cool place. <laughs> Sheboygan County Asylum. This is quickly becoming one of the most popular haunted attractions in the state. It's been on a bunch of TV shows. Kindred Spirits, Destination Fear. Adam Barry from Kindred Spirits did, as we talked about on a couple of shows ago, did a, a public investigation there. He's coming back this Christmas, um, right around Christmas, sometime in December, and doing another one because the first one was attended so well, uh, as is the second one. I think the second one is sold out too. So very popular place, no question about it. The history of this place is pretty muddled. People get it confused with two other buildings, two other buildings which were in different locations. So now what is known in pop culture as the Sheboygan County Asylum is actually called the Sheboygan County Comprehensive Health Center, Comprehensive Health Care Center, actually. So the original Sheboygan County Hospital for the Insane opened in 1876 in a different area, and that was in a rural area south of Plymouth. Now that building burned down killed four people, and eventually it killed the hospital director who died like two months later. The so. building didn't, the fire did. The fire killed, 
Well, actually, five people, four patients and the director. Right. The yeah. fire did, not the building itself. Right. Okay. Yes. I'm glad I clarified. Thank you for that. So now the county board, after that burned down, the county board decided to build another one closer to Sheboygan city limits. And in 1882, the new asylum opened. By 1911, the campus of this facility was about 80 acres. It had 225 patients, so, you know, decent size. By 1911, 225 patients is a lot of people to to care for, you know, in the early part of the 1900s. And then by the 1930s, this building was falling into disrepair. And it was outdated for modern care. So a new facility needed to be built. So the new facility, the, the, what we now know as the Sheboygan County Asylum, was built in the 1940s, closer to Sheboygan Falls. Which East is, of Waldo. So the old facility, which was, was, was standing for a couple of decades after the new building was built, it was raised in the 60s. And that would be right about where Pick and Save is, right off of 23 in Sheboygan. So, you know, the next time you go in to grab some, some lunch at Pick and Save... You know, you're standing on the ground of the old, uh, the old Sheboygan Insane Asylum. <laughs> Hope you feel right at home. Right, right. So the new facility, again called the Sheboygan County Comprehensive Healthcare Center, took patients who were mentally ill, developmentally disabled, and it was a nursing home for the elderly. So hence the word comprehensive, right? You know, throughout the 1970s, it was also an inpatient rehab for AODA services for you know, for alcohol and drugs and whatnot. Like you said, like Scott said, it was built in 1940. After a couple of years of, of being open, the grounds were actually taken over by the Army and used during World War II to house POWs. The backstory uh, from the Sheboygan County Research Center says that during spring of 1942, rumors said that Hitler planned a weapons airdrop to his soldiers held prisoner at detention camps in England. Well, that the fear, the legitimate fear of that, led to the U.S. agreeing to take charge of prisoners captured by the Brits that year, and so as a result of that, thousands of POWs, German and Italian, were brought to the U.S. and housed for the duration of World War II. The first Germans arriving in January of 1944. So, and that's it's interesting. It, it, it is. It up. is. Sure, it is. It is interesting. But there, there were um, numerous German POW camps in the that we had one in Appleton. Uh, they worked at Goodland Field. Some of them, right. some of these German there. Well, it, it Minnesota a, had them too, right? Yeah, and um, but Wisconsin had three times the number of POWs in the fields because eventually they canning peas. Right. Yeah. The, the POWs were deployed to area farm fields and factories needing the labor. Then called Sheboygan Camp, its prisoners worked at the Lakeside Packing Company, the Cleveland Packing Company, the Calumet Dutch Packing Company, the Oostburg Canning Company, the Guido Canning Company, and the Waldo Canning Company. And like you say, Wisconsin had three times the number of POWs in the fields as Minnesota did. And a lot of them never left. A lot of these POWs after the war didn't go back home. At least not for a year or two after it was over. So, you know, so I just want to mention that, you know, a lot of the research of this building, that is, that is an interesting aspect, but it's, that's kind of played into the haunting at like German POWs. There was a lot of German POW camps in Wisconsin. As Mickey said, we had more than. Well, all over the Midwest too, not just Wisconsin. Yeah. And, And they, they weren't, you know, POWs as we know, they weren't treated poorly. You know, they were out working. They were they were working in fields and, and whatnot, but they were treated you know, like human beings. Sure, yeah, they were they were for the most part they were they were treated well. You know, there's 
Uh, I know Horton, Hortonville had one too. So there were, you know, there were numerous just in the Fox Valley area alone of these uh, German, mostly German, but as Mickey said, there were uh, Italians here as well. And they were actually largely credited to saving the crops during the 1944-1945 growing seasons. These POWs actually helped most of Wisconsin in, in sure. not losing their crops, so right. they were appreciated. So now, you know, as as the 20th century went on, uh, we get into the into the later part of the 20th century, a lot of the services that, that the healthcare facility was offering was being carved out into other facilities. So I know the, the mental health services went somewhere else, um, and it was basically a nursing home until it, um, until it closed down for good in 2002. So now the building still stands, obviously. It's privately owned. It's well taken care of. You know, I don't know if it's being, I don't know if it's famous for being haunted as much as it's famous for being a place that offers ghost hunts, you know, and a place that's on TV a lot. Because the building, the history of it is pretty clean. You know, there's there's not, and, and documentation isn't everything. Obviously, everything that happened isn't documented. But a lot of these facilities, you know, mid-20th century, like this one, were nasty. Documented nasty. Murders, rapes, beatings, stuff like that. There's nothing in the record that that happened at this facility. doesn't mean it doesn't. And there are former employees that are still alive today that talk about um, that thing did happen, that kind of thing did happen. So I'm not saying that um, none of that stuff happened there. But according to the record, this building has a pretty clean history. Obviously, it was a medical facility for decades. Thousands of people died there. And it dealt with mentally ill and developably disabled and chronically ill. And sources even say that one nurse and a janitor and multiple patients committed suicide. But again, those types of things do tend to happen at these kinds of facilities, whether that leads to hauntings or paranormal activity later on or not. So just because that happened doesn't necessarily mean these results would be there, but that does lead to the stories, whether it's true or not. Right. The record, I think the record has one nurse suicide. And again, there's rumors of up to seven nurses committed, died by suicide, but but, one janitor. Right. But, you know, again, for the most part, a much cleaner history in this building than you see with a lot of, you know, mid 20th century lunatic asylums is what they were a lot of time referred to. So anytime you're dealing with a place like this, you're dealing with a lot of negative energy, right? There's death there. There's sadness there. Right, people and, are dealing with illnesses, so. and, and some of the things people have said that they've witnessed is a little girl humming, being touched, having their hair pulled. People have heard loud bangs, door slamming, whispers and screams, as we've kind of alluded to with a lot of these places. Those are the kind of things that people typically end up feeling or seeing when they're sure in these environments. Not the place is likely haunted. I don't deny that at all. It, you can go on tours pretty much all year, and those are run by, it's not owned by the Fox Valley Ghost Hunters and Craig Naring, but Fox Valley Ghost Hunters run those ghost tours. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, they're like three or four hour clips, you know, that you, you paid and you can walk through the building and do a, and do a ghost hunt. And, um, you know, again, it's been on TV shows all over the place. 
There's clips of this thing online all over the place. But, you know, again, in my opinion, more famous for being an asylum that you can do public tours in than being haunted, because there's not a whole lot of haunted history yet with this building. Um, as a, you know, I think that the, the haunted tours are still a fairly recent thing. So assuming that once your children are older and you're not living the life of a married family man, is this a place that you and Jim Cooper, who we've had on the podcast, and your wife would check out at some point? No question about it. Yeah. I would think a night in this place, I, I would I would not doubt for a second that we would come away with some pretty good stuff. So you do believe there's... there's, there's, uh, there's no question about spirits there. No question or energy about it. there. You, you have an energy. You have you have a building for decades where there are hundreds of people in every day with all kinds of energy spouted out. Negative energy, happy times, sad times. There's energy in those walls. There's no question about it. None, in my opinion. So for the last two, number nine and number ten, we actually picked. A couple of regions, because there's always, uh, when we look at these top 10 lists, one or two different places in these regions that we see on these lists, and they're not always the same. So, and they're, I think they're popular areas people know quite a bit. So we're going to talk a little bit about a number of places in both of these regions, and that'll start out in Door County. (laughs) Door County is an interesting place, and on the tip of Door County is a cluster of islands the largest of which is Washington Island. About 700 year-round residents on it, which is more than I would have thought, actually. I've been there. Not a lot of people there. This island has been inhabited by natives for hundreds of years, specifically Potawatomi and the Ho-Chunk, who have sparred over that land for a long time. Later, French fur traders settled that land. And then came a number of Scandinavians and Icelanders. It's actually, today, it's one of the largest... Icelandic descended communities in the nation. But the uh, between these islands, between the uh, well, the southern tip of Washington Island and the northern tip of Door County is a pretty treacherous strait which connects Lake Michigan to the rest of Green Bay. And this passageway uh, was known to the French fur traders as Port de Mort, or Door of Death, or Death's Door of how we know it today which is also where Door County comes from. So the specific reason it's named this is unclear, although there are many ships that have gone down there. That's claimed a lot of sunken ships, just that one strait between Washington Island and Door County. And the French are adamant that it predates them. So it seems the name was given to that area by the natives, and it's thought to be about a battle that took place there between the Potawatomi and the Ho-Chunk, where the Winnebago lost, well, the Ho-Chunk... Uh, where the Ho-Chunk lost about 600 warriors at a bluff that's known today as Death Door Bluff. Again, unclear about whether that's the real reason or whether it's because the ships that have gone down or the natives had lost so many people in that strait. But for some reason, obviously it's claimed a lot of lives for various reasons, it is known today as Death Door. Now, on Washington Island is a tavern called Nelson's Hall and Bitters Club, which shows up on all of these lists. This is on every Wisconsin top 10 haunted place you're going to see. Interesting place. Sounds like a cool place to go, whether I've it's haunted there. or not. I've been there. It I've is, been there, too. I have been there. There's a golf course on Washington Island. It's only a nine-hole golf course. You uh, There's these little cottages on the golf course, so you stay there at these cottages. And so we stayed there years ago. 
Mickey and I stayed in, in the cottage we stayed at. So we, Vicky, not Mickey. Right, my wife. Yeah. So, we, you know, we basically stay in our room and we open up the door and we're like right on hole one. So you wake up at like seven in the morning, you grab your club and you go out and you play golf. So we stayed there a few years ago. We took the ferry over with our car. You know, you pay, I think it was 45 bucks or something to take your car over on the ferry to bring it there. And we caroused around the island for a few nights and went to Nelson's. Did you become members of the Bitters Club? We did not. I did not try that. No. Have you ever had Bitters? No. I've had the hiccups. I've had Bitters. I can handle it. I can become part of the club. Really? It's not tasty. I can imagine it wasn't. No, I don't think I would do that. So originally, uh, this place was opened by Thomas Nelson, who was a Danish immigrant. uh, And he comes to Washington Island, and he opens it up as a dance hall in 1899. He added the bar three years later. Of course. So where you have dancing, you got to have drinking. Especially in Wisconsin. So he had a pretty pretty good business going there until again until about 1920 what happened then yeah when the uh prohibition kicks in and takes everybody's fun away now nelson he wasn't going to do this he was not about to give up his. what a genius not about to give up his business i've never heard of anyone granted i don't know but to have thought of this in the first place no it's amazing you said genius and yeah right so now what nelson knew is that alcohol could still be sold technically for medicinal purposes well the right kind of alcohol and he knew that bitters is alcohol it's 45 percent alcohol a stomach right. tonic for medicinal purposes. Which makes it 90 proof. And this was sold at a pharmacy in Sturgeon Bay. So this guy goes and he gets himself a pharmacist license, which apparently wasn't too hard to do in uh, 1920-ish. Right. And uh, gets himself a pharmacy license, and he starts selling shots of bitters in his bar. Angostura bitters, to be specific. Now, again, these were shots of 90 proof. Alcohol. So people were having fun. Well, once they felt the effects of it, because again, the taste sure right doesn't make the experience fun. So now, he, he, so his his business keeps going, right? I mean, he's he's people are coming. They're the only alcohol they're getting around there is at his establishment. So he's probably loving prohibition actually right now until a Fed comes in and sees what's going on, and he can kind of tell that this was a gag that Nelson had to skirt the law. And sell alcohol. So they tried to shut him down. You went to the county seat in Sturgeon Bay, had papers drawn, and he served Mr. Nelson. And Nelson fights it, and they go to court, and basically he brings his bitters, he brings his bitters and a shot glass into the courtroom. Saying that bitters can be bought at any drugstore, offering many medicinal benefits. He also stated that the tavern had also served as a movie theater, a dentist office, an ice cream parlor, and again, a pharmacy. So this was a multi-business business. So in court, he has his bitters, he has his shot glass, and he invites the judge to taste it. <laughs> and the judge did. <laughs> he winds up siding with Nelson. <laughs> right, that's all it took. Because as Mickey said, <laughs> the judge said nobody in, in their, their right, right mind, mind would take this stuff for fun <laughs> because it tastes so damn bad. There's no way anybody's drinking this stuff to get drunk. No. So he let Nelson go. And right. so Nelson goes back and he keeps his business. All he did was bring it in and make the judge try it, and the case was dropped. Right, and the, you know, the rest is history. Genius. It survived prohibition, no problem. And you know? Nelson's has become the largest purveyor of Angostura, again, Angostura bitters in the world, 
according to a fairly well-known document called the Guinness Book of World Records. Only in Wisconsin, baby. So because that was allowed to stay open through prohibition and sell alcohol, it is today the long, the oldest legally continuing operating tavern in the state of Wisconsin today. And they sell more than 10,000 shots of Angostura bitters annually. You every year. Still go there today and you can drink bitters. This disgusting stuff in a cup. You can get a bitter burger. Which yeah, is obviously right. a burger in a burger infused with bitters. Mm, uh, I did not try either. <laughs> I want to try Maybe the burger. Maybe one day no, I will. I, I, I want to try the burger. I'm going to make you take the shot. So we will go there. So Nelson lived above the bar, right? He he lived in the, the second floor of, of the bar, and he died in that building. And it is known today that he haunts that building today. He died at the age of ninety, by the way. So he lived a, long, a, a nice long life, ran so a the good me, business. the medicinal effects of the bitters did its trick for him, obviously. It, you know, again, it's, it's thought that he haunts the building. The current owner says that she will get tapped on the shoulder sometimes. She'll hear footsteps upstairs. Doors will close, knocking. This stuff that you hear all the time. Again, this, in my opinion, is something that is more famous for for the story. More famous because of Nelson than it is for the haunting of the building. And this current owner, Robin DiTello, she says it's telling her that she feels the presence thinking he's telling her she's doing a good job. So if nothing else, there's humor behind it. It backs the story. It's interesting. So another another place that we see in Door County a lot on these lists is the Alexander Noble House, which is uh, in 1875 Greek Revival Farmhouse located in Fish Creek. Right on Highway 42, the uh, house was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1996. So it's got some background to it. Alexander Noble, interesting guy. He was actually one of the founders of Fish Creek, moved to the area in 1863 from Scotland. They were actually Scottish immigrants, he and his wife. Uh, and their children. And he was, like I said, one of the founders of Fish Creek. Noble actually moved to Chambers Island, Wisconsin, from his native Scotland in 1856. And then from Chambers Island, he moved to Fish Creek in 1863. Uh, he was the community blacksmith. He was the postmaster. He was the town chairman. He was a county board member. Farmer. You know, but there aren't they all farmers? Right, right. Yeah, especially in Wisconsin. <laughs> right. So, you know, in the 1860s, you were pretty much a jack-of-all-trades at that time. You kind of had to be. He built the first sawmill in Fish Creek, as a matter of fact, not even Door County, but turning the island into a busy lumber camp. Even And lumber was a big deal at this, as we've discussed in the past, in all of Wisconsin. But in this area, he was the first one to actually build a sawmill, having learned from the example of the rest of the state. Now, uh, Alexander's wife, Emily Vaughn, winds up passing away in 1873. And this was before they lived in what is now the Alexander Noble House. They lived in a, a much smaller kind of a log cabin, really, when she passed away. And, uh, you know, a year after her death, the house that they were living in at the time burned up, burned to the ground. And everything they had from her, all mementos, most of the photographs they had of her, not many people had photographs anyways in, you know, the 1870s. But all, everything they had of her was gone. Burned up. We've covered this in quite a few of our episodes. Fires happen so frequently. And like you said, everything went down and they had to start over so often. I mean, this was the lumber capital of the world, but fires happened so often, even when there wasn't 
everything was made of wood. Of, right. Everything was made of wood. But why did everything start on fire all the time? Things were so fragile. Well, and there was also no help. You know, you couldn't pick up a phone it, and call the fire department. It just went down. You know, yeah, right. you had to, you know, hopefully you had neighbors that were in, you know, close proximity that could help you. Um, but unless you were an established town, you know, some cities had basically a carriage and a horse with a hose on it. Right. You know, and those were cities at the right. time. And that's all they had. So if you're in a rural area and you have a house fire, good luck. And these, but these are some of the most established places in these towns. And they, you just kind of assume they'd go up in a few years. And that we were talking even like industry places and stuff. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, that's why there's so many great fires in our history. Right. You know, Especially the, back then. The Great Peshtigo Fire is one we've talked about, obviously. Uh, Oshkosh, the city of Oshkosh had five great fires. You know, it, they had five. Right. You know, the last one, I think it was in 1895. And then after that, 18, well, the one before that, 1875, the entire, almost the entire downtown burned down. And that's when now you have everything going up as brick. Well, even right? in so your that, first book, you mentioned how many fires happened in the Fox Valley. Just right. like these huge places that the whole community de- depended on would go up in flames. Right. It would happen, and then 10 years later it would happen again. It just That's just how it was back then. It's Everything crazy. was wood-based, and there was... I mentioned your book again. So I appreciate that. No, that's just it me. It's not planned. It's right? me pr- promoting my but, friend. That's you all. know, everything is wood-based. There's sawdust all over the place because there's saw mills and lumber camps all over the place. So And there's woods all over the place, right? So there's tinder everywhere. So there's a reason why, and it's crazy when we think about it now, but there's a reason why they had constant fires in the you know the later part of the and why we've changed century. why they became the industrial age and we she started making steel right right because wood was not dependable. So a year after a year or so after their their house burned up, they build the what is known today as the Alexander Noble House in Fish Creek, and it was kind of right after they moved into the house that the family themselves started reporting weird stuff happening. And they would see this foggy mist in the backyard of the house, and it would kind of manifest into a person. So it would be like a woman in white, this kind of foggy, misty-like woman in white, which looked like she was holding a baby, which the family then, you know, they, they kind of just took that as being their mother, Emily Vaughn, who had died because she had lost a child earlier in her life. So they kind of took that as being their mother, the ghost of their mother, you know, wandering around the backyard of their new home, carrying the baby that she had lost earlier in life. So so the, the, the children believed it was her, quote, maternal instinct, unquote, bringing her back and manifesting her back in this world to continue checking on her children who are now in her new home, right? It was a a new home. She's worried about them in the other life or in the other world, right? She's checking on them. This is the ghostly spirit of their mother, according to the family. And this is what they believed. So this house was continually lived in by that family from 1875 until 1990. So fairly recently, when the last resident, Gertrude Howe, moved out of the house because she was elderly and she had to move into assisted living. Yeah, she died five years later, but she lived in a Scandia nursing home. So for a while, the house was empty. So you have this house built in 1875, continuously lived in until 1990, and now it's empty, right? So obviously that house will build up a legend on its own. And now you have stories of people walking by 
and seeing ghostly faces in the window, they would see a, quote, woman in white. There's always a woman in white, right? There's always yeah. a woman of white. Summerwind talked about that quite mm-hmm. a bit. So, you know, they would see ghostly presences in the window looking out at people walking by. A man's face appearing in photos in a mirror beside them when they took a picture next to it. So, and even and even today, today it is now a museum. And again, this was slated for demolition, I believe, too, in the... Uh, in the early 2000s, and then it was built by, or it was saved by a private entity. I believe it's some kind of historical society. I don't think it's the Door County Historical Society. Gibraltar Historical there Association yes. in 1984 came to the rescue with the town hall from becoming a parking lot. There was something called the Noble Historical Square Fund, which raised two thirds of the total cost of the house, which was 500000 And the town of Gibraltar raised the rest, and that was all part of the Gibraltar Historical Association. So they raised the they money came together. through private funds to save the house, which, you know, is the way to do it now. That's what we see when, when houses are slated to be torn down. Private funds usually are banded together to save these places. That's what happened in Appleton with the Hearthstone as well. Right. Same deal. And once rescued, the Noble House immediately became registered with both Wisconsin and National Register of Historical Places in 1996. So saving it allowed these uh, more statewide and national places to appreciate it and take it under their wing. So now it's a it's a museum today. And because again this is kind of goes back to the to Fairlawn Mansion which what we talked about in episode 1, now that there's visitors in that house quite a bit, there's more and more stories about hauntings coming out of that place and like Mickey said the the with the mirror, one of the most common things we see about this house is it's known to have quote haunted mirrors. And people take selfies all the time, and they see ghostly faces in the mirror. It's kind of, you know, that's kind of what you do. You go to the Alexander Noble House, and you take a selfie in front of the mirror to try to, you know, see if you can capture something. It's well known now. It's become kind of the part of the folklore of the house is that the, you know, the mirrors themselves are haunted. There's never been any kind of one person that they believe is is the person in the mirrors. They're, they're different faces, different entities. So... You know, as of today, it's not quite known who or what is in the mirrors manifesting itself in photographs today. And one particular person who worked as a nighttime docent for the Door County Haunted Trolley Tour for three months in one summer, she recalls feeling someone consoling her and touching her back. Her name is Caitlin Busky. On nights when she was all alone, she'd witness flickering lights. She'd witness falling picture frames. The sound of children crying, slamming doors, and at times she'd actually see the apparition of a man appearing above her when she looked in the mirror. But this is someone who actually did the tours, and she she felt the presence of this guy. And, I mean, she, she appreciated her time there, but she was kind of to the point where she needed to get out. So, And that's somebody who worked there on a regular basis on a regular basis doing tours. So it's not just people walking in and seeing things that they want to see. With the addition of that, to, you know, when you, you look at Nelson's and then we look at the Alexander Noble House, which I think are the two most uh, popular individual places talked about as being haunted in Door County, you then have lighthouses. Lighthouses are often brought up as being haunted in Door County. I think there's nine total lighthouses in Door County, three of which Really all of them. We were, you know, when I used to investigate, we were in discussions, and this this was years ago, we were in discussions about doing investigations in all nine of the lighthouses, and it never came to fruition. And there's, You really did consider all nine of them? Yes, that, 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 that was the 
that was the the conversation was doing all nine. And the, I mean, to the point, I've I've been to because I actually have a lighthouse collection of resin type houses in my curio cabinet that I'm looking at right now as we record this. But so I have, you know, it's been acquired, but I've been of a fascination with lighthouses all over the country. Lighthouses do have that tendency to be to have these stories, whether they're true or not, because they're just mystic places you know on a on a point where there's fog and 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 just stories that happening with the sea around them and the water around them so it does create an atmosphere so it makes sense that these places would have these kinds of stories along with them but the fact that door county has nine different places specifically three that we'll talk about it it makes sense and it's they're intriguing stories it does make sense, and, and I, I fully believe that lighthouses are the quintessential buildings uh, and the quintessential examples of residual hauntings. Again, not necessarily an intelligent being, not necessarily a spirit of a dead person. Residual hauntings, because you had a family that lived in these, in these lighthouses. They're isolated, right? They're on islands or they're off on a cliff somewhere, and they're there for years. And it's basically the same family the same energy in those places for decades at a time. And they're surrounded by water. Right. And there's there's just open wind and everything, and, and, and the elements and all that stuff going on around them. And who knows? I mean, maybe it's residual. Maybe it's actual things that happen because it's just, like you say, a haunted house on, a, on an upper hill or something like that. The, the, these have these elements already built in that we're so used to when it comes to scary situations right and and they're they're surrounded as you said by water and stone which are two of the natural objects in our world that are mentioned in the stone tape theory which allows residuals this stuff to keep which allows this energy to keep playing back over and over and over again so you know that that would be my opinion with lighthouses fully believe that these would be quote-unquote hauntings but i believe that they would be residual in nature and not necessarily intelligent not that there's not intelligent beings in these there very well could be but it's still audio evidence of the history which to not, this at this point we still consider paranormal not only audio but vi- but visual too right, I mean, you, right, you can yeah. you can see energy manifesting too even right. if it's residual it doesn't mean it's a it's an intelligent being behind it but and maybe it's not paranormal cuz we're still trying to understand that but but it's energy and information and entities that we don't fully understand being, to this point. Being played back somehow, right? So, like I said, there's there's nine total lighthouses in Door County. There's three that really are known, for the most part, to be haunted, and you see these three come up over and over again. And uh, the first one we'll talk about here is Sherwood Point Lighthouse, built in 1883, really right on the southern tip of Sturgeon Bay, I believe. At the Green Bay entrance of Sturgeon Bay, yes. So this is a, uh, it's kind of a red brick, one and a half story house. Um, with a square tower. In 1889, Keeper William Cocombs married Minnie Hesh, and that's where some of these stories come from. In 1928, she suffered a stroke and died while getting out of bed upstairs in her upstairs bedroom. William stayed at the Sherwood Point her husband stayed at Sherwood Point until he retired in 1933. So now the story of this is that is that Minnie Hesh passes away in the house, as Nikki said, in 1928 of a of a stroke. So the the hauntings that are supposed to be in that in that lighthouse are supposed to be of of her. Residents and visitors have reported hearing noises, 
including voices and clicking of teacups. Others have seen the presence on a staircase. Uh, Robert Cochams took a photo of it in 1984, and a photo shows a human form in one of the windows. And this is all suggested that wife Minnie is the spirit still presenting, but seems to be a friendly sort. Again, another friendly presence, but just something that you see that you don't necessarily know is real. Now, this was actually the last manned lighthouse in Door County, I believe, up until... So it was manned until 1983, 100 years after it was built, and it didn't wasn't automated until until then, until 1983. So it was it's actually the last manned lighthouse in Door County. I think maybe all of Wisconsin, actually. So you know the stories of this are are you know long, and it all basically is you know is Minnie Hash, the spirit of Minnie Hash, because she passed away in the home. Again, these are residual noises from that time. Teacups. So not based Feeling on evil or anything. Voices. Just information of the people that lived there. Nothing due to a negative presence or a negative situation or a horrific traumatic situation. Just, as Scott said, the, the rocks and the water and the just having this energy and producing it so that we have audio and video information. Another one that's that's often talked about as being haunted is, is Chambers Island Lighthouse. And Chambers Island is an island... I believe it's the largest island of the islands off of Door County, um, about seven miles northwest of Fish Creek. Uh, this is built in 1868. You know, and from what I'm finding here, it's basically comes from one person, yes? So the, the, a caretaker started reporting things in 1976, and he reported footsteps coming down coming downstairs. I think keys rattling, clicking. You know, he just he's hearing residual noises and this is supposed to be the spirit of lewis williams the first light keeper you'd hear sounds of footsteps coming down this tower staircase continuing through the living room to the kitchen and ending with a click as the kitchen door closed in the summer of 1979 during renovation reports say that tools began disappearing as we again talked about at summer when this seems to be a common theme. So this lighthouse is open today. I think you have to rent it. It's only by special arrangement. You can't like go right up to it. It's a restricted access lighthouse, as most lighthouses are. Um, but it is by special arrangement. I'm not sure if it's an Airbnb. Some of these lighthouses are Airbnbs, or you can rent it out through the Coast Guard. But apparently Chambers Island Lighthouse is still open, um, and you can rent it, and it is reachable if you have prior arrangement. So stories may still be happening there. Well, visitors say that when they do spend the night, um, they have said that their beds would sometimes shake as if by the mighty unseen pair of hands. Now, that would freak me the fuck out. See, you know, really? I, and mean, I've got a twisted mind, as we've kind of shown. I've never experienced what you've experienced, so I'm, I guess I'm still a cynic. I'm looking forward to seeing that because I do like the weird. I like the bizarre. I like the twisted. I guess that's why I'm doing this podcast. But I want to see that. I want to be shaken by a large pair of hands. Maybe that sounds perverse the way I say it. I want it to happen. It, it, it's also, you know, and I hate being a cynic in these in these play. We're, but again, you know, we we're, have we're, to. We're yeah. trying to forward, you know, legendary stories about this stuff. And, and you I have to we, be a cynic or, or the reality of it. I just, I don't believe that happening, man. Right. Oh, I get it. And, and why would you? I don't either. That's why I want to witness it. But if you're not a cynic, then then the, the, the reality of it, it's kind of blown away because if you just have blind faith, why would you believe that? It's the people who don't believe it that go in and tell you, oh, my God, this is true. 
those are the ones who make it become the truth. I just I think that if that is true, like if 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 a, if an intelligent, I guess this would be a spirit of a dead person. Yes, I mean right. That's, that's it's the not assumption. residual. Then if they can do that, if they can shake the bed that you're sleeping in, they can do a lot freaking more. That's what you right? and Jim said. So, yeah, hell it, no, it's not me. residual because, and that's the thing. You guys have that experience that I do not. It's not residual because it's now. It's in the now. It's reality. It's happening. They're responding to your reactions right now. And you guys have that experience that would freak you out or or make you understandably be reserved to go into that situation? I do not. So I want to go there and have my bed shake so that I'd be go, oh, my God, I'm never doing this again. But I want to have yeah, but, it. Yeah, but then you're trapped on an island. Well. <laughs> so you are doing it until you're off that But, damn man, island. is it a good story. People are going to remember me when I die then. No, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. See, I so want to go out with so a good story. Then you can story. shake other people's beds, I guess. Yeah. But, right. Thank you. And yeah. I will do a good job. I'm a, enough of a freak. I will do a good job for haunting people. Now, the third one we have on the list here, uh, Potawatomi Lighthouse, which is actually the oldest lighthouse in Door County, built in 1836. Uh, and then it was replacing it in 1858. Now, this is on Rock Island, which is off the, the very northern tip of... It was automated in 1956, too, which means it's still under use, but human control sure, it's is not, not manned necessary. anymore. Right, so that, right. so that when we were talking about, when we talked about Sher- Sherwood Point, oh, like right. we said, that the last the last lighthouse being manned was in 1983. So this one, was, was automated in the, in, in the 1950s. So Now, the, the original keeper of this lighthouse david corbin is buried on the island so and i've never been to rock island that is that is a place that i would love to go to again been to washington island i've never made the trek to rock island but that is definitely in my future for sure david corbin was actually a veteran of the war of 1812 which is pretty significant he was appointed as the keeper on december 19th 1837 and in 1918 1845, an inspector reported that Corbin was a bit lonely. This is what an inspector said. He was a bit lonely, and he was sent on a 20-day leave of absence to find himself a wife. That's just how they did things back then. 20 because, days, good for him. Well, yeah, right, yeah. Go go find yourself a mate for life in 20 days. I mean, that's that's worse than the reality shows now, right? I mean, they give them a couple of months at least. You're lonely. We're afraid you're not going to be able to run this because your mind's going to start going crazy because you're all by yourself. Go find a wife. Go convince some woman, some strange woman, that she should marry you so that you can run your lighthouse and not go crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's, nothing like, could go wrong. He's the original Brett Michaels from Rock of Love. I mean, Dave. <laughs> wow. So now this is a museum today. You can go to it. It's open. Um, and, you know, like, as we talked about previously, anytime there's a museum in these places where there's lots of visitors, you have lots of stories. And there's all kinds of haunted stories coming out of here. Especially with that background. Poor dude was just trying to mind his own business, and they said, you're too lonely, go find a wife. He didn't do it, for the record. He wasn't successful, but he eventually did convince Catherine Storse and her already alive three children and a 19-year-old laborer named William Kingsley to move in. Now suddenly, it was one guy, and now it's making the lighthouse a bit crowded. He invited all these people in just so he could keep his the, the, the life that he's come to know, and that 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 this was the solution as as they forced him into. If only all employers were so understanding. Right, <laughs> go find yourself right. a wife. Change your whole life. 
Go find somebody. We'll keep you on the payroll. Don't worry about it. You got three weeks. So now the stories of this are, you know, again, typical residual stuff, doors closing, voices, but a lot of children stuff, which has always been creepy to me in terms of ghosts. A lot, lots of voices of children, which again, when there were children in that lighthouse, there's children on those grounds. Um, and he convinced that woman and her three children to bring in. He eventually passed away in 1852. He was buried on the island, as Scott mentioned. On March 22, 1870, Civil War veteran William Betts was appointed as the new keeper. And 17 months later, as we know the theme, you're not allowed to be there by yourself for too long because you'll become depressed and too lonely. 38-year-old Betts married a 16-year-old Emily Ron, And after... Assistant keeper James Fuller assigned the position in 1866 because they all had to have an assistant. He resigned again in 1866. Emily, his new wife, his 16-year-old wife, or I guess she was a little older by then, she became the new assistant, letting the whole family occupy the entire lighthouse. It is, you know, all jokes aside, it is interesting that they they didn't want you to be there alone because it does you're make so sense isolated. Too, right, it makes it, sense. being isolation like that and boredom right it it can create psychosis i mean it can drive you literally mad that's why they have a solitude in prisons i mean it's punishment in a prison they they put you in a in a solid rock stone cave basically as a punishment and yet these guys were choosing as their lifestyle so it's it's probably good that the government understood that this could lead to wrongdoings when it comes to these <laughs> posts that are supposed yeah. to be leading people on the sea. And obviously there's there's all kinds of studies going on right now in preparation for a manned, for a manned um, mission to Mars. Right. You know, so they're, they're seeing how isolation is going to affect people on that. I just actually read a book called The Madhouse. You read a book? Good for you. I did. It's called The Madhouse uh, at the End of the World, and it's about the uh, Britannica expedition, which was a Belgium... A Belgian expedition. This sounds really boring. I know that. No, no. It <laughs> it's a, it's about it it's it's a real story about the Belgian expedition to Antarctica, um, in I think it was 1898, and they got stuck in ice, and they were literally in ice for like six months, and these guys are are going nuts because they're so bored. There's not they can't do anything, right? And they're just they're bored. They're isolated. They eat the same food every day, and it's horrible food. And they're literally, and it's really good because one of the guys literally descends into madness and he dies and so, it's really really well described in but this book they had enough food that it wasn't like they had enough food well and there were penguins on the islands too I, well, so they, they, so they, would, was, they would eat the penguins but so it wasn't like yeah no it, there was no cannibalism involved, okay so but, i mean because it sounds along like that where they didn't necessarily go crazy they just were forced to do things they never would have done no. in their in their wildest dreams but uh, they again, had weapons, they had guns and stuff, and there, like I said, there there were penguins that there they were ate, things, things, and they yeah. had food. But you know, when you're you're eating that the isolation. same mundane food, and that has that's and part doing, of it. and you're doing nothing. There's no one. There's there's nothing. Um, to keep your in, interest in regards to the food. There's nothing pleasurable and about no, the experience. And there's right? no entertainment. Right. You're literally sitting on a block of ice, looking at each other, probably sick of each other because your temperament, your anger. You're, all that stuff builds up. I, this is not uninteresting to my mind because it's I can overanalyze and psychological. Just being stuck in a situation like that, what would cause people to go crazy? It doesn't surprise me at all. Right. It's, it's, it's well documented in that book. It makes sense what they're talking about here with these light keepers 
these lighthouse keepers that they did not want them to be alone because they could start seeing things in the middle of the oh, night. Oh, right. You know? Isolation causes yeah. delusions. It causes delusions of grandeur, as a matter of fact. And But it also just, the way your mind is going to play tricks, and like I said, that's why prisons put you in this isolation, which sometimes, if you think about it, might be the worst thing for these guys who are already trying to be re- rehabilitated in a prison. Putting them in an isolation situation maybe isn't the best thing because your mind, if it's not right to begin with, might even go more haywire because these minds are powerful, whether we understand that or not. So Door County, you see lots and lots of different stories showing up on these lists about Door County, um, a lot of these various places that we have just uh, mentioned here. So Door County, great place. I'm sure everybody has been there. Um, a lot of haunted history to it. So number 10 on this list would be the Great River Road. Along the, along the old man, the old miss. Along the mighty Mississippi, the Great River Road. In Wisconsin, this is known pretty much to go from La Crosse south into Illinois. But, you know, in Wisconsin, well, you're looking until, from, into Louisiana, from, actually. Well, sure, sure. The whole Great River Road goes through the, the entirety of the United States, really, from... As far as stories, even. It goes mm-hmm. all the way down to Louisiana, right? But in Wisconsin, this goes from, you know, roughly La Crosse-ish area um, until you cross into Illinois. So and this this has a number of, of haunted places. Obviously, a really rich history, this area, steamboating, logging, um, really centuries of industry going on in this area. So you have an area here, especially La Crosse, lots of old saloons, uh, that really kind of harken back to this time. And one in particular that, you know, you see in all of these lists is called the Bodega Brew Pub, and that is in La Crosse. It's a pretty sweet bar. From what I have seen, I have not been there. I've been to La Crosse many, many times. You've been to a lot of these freaking I places. I have not been to um, the Bodega Brew Pub. And so this was built by uh, a man named Paul Malin, in the 1890s, and he ran it as a pool hall. Basically had a number of pool tables in it. Again, catered to lumbermen, sailors, steamboat operators. And this is who it was frequented by, so it was a pool hall. And it was very successful in its day in the 1890s. For reasons unknown, Paul Malin, who lived up above the bar in an apartment which was pretty customary back in those days, inexplicably hanged himself in his apartment in 1901. He was found hanging by his wife uh, in the apartment. And he today is known to haunt this place. Uh, Bartenders talk about uh, various things that they hear. They're being tapped. They hear voices. They hear glasses clanging when they shouldn't be, you know, before it opens after it's already closed when there's nobody else in there they hear all kinds of things footsteps a lot of footsteps upstairs where his apartment would have been so you know a lot of the classic residual sounds that you would hear again from a residual haunting it's kind of weird though because he chose the death it's strange that he killed himself and yet he's still stuck in this purgatory which is typically what people think as far as paranormal activity well, let's 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 look at that because this is what I this I found this and this I think is really interesting. Again, he lived up above that bar in his apartment with his wife, and I found this news article from the Lacrosse Tribune 
from August 24, 1907. Headline, lacrosse woman detained on charge of murder by authorities at Viroqua. Mrs. Mary Malin, widow of the late Paul Malin, is held in Viroqua awaiting a hearing in connection with the poisoning of Carl Schmidt, age 65, who dropped dead from his chair at his home 20 miles from Viroqua. So Paul's widow straight up killed her brother-in-law, her sister's husband, poisoned him. And the reason being, she wanted to live with her sister. <laughs> so That's weird. So, I mean, she just, you know, my point here, why this is interesting to me, is because she just willy-nilly killed her brother-in-law, right? Right, but she lost her sister. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm saying some people are so connected to the person they've been living with, their own sibling or their own friend, that they hate the person that takes them away from them. That, I mean, that's legitimate, no matter what the connection is, whether they're related or not. Like friends, okay, this has been my roommate, this has been my buddy, now you found a girlfriend, no. I mean, that is enough reason for people to go crazy. Unfortunately. But if you are so inhumane that you poison somebody just because you want to live with I'm not saying it's logical. I'm not saying I've done it for the record, too. Who's to say she didn't do this to her husband, right? Right. Like, I mean, why? maybe that is the reason, if this is an intelligent haunting, that he's haunting the place to begin with. So, you know, if you're going to be, if you're so incompassionate, what's the word for that? If you're such a shit person. Well, that you can straight up kill somebody well, for a while. Well, your husband's reason. dead, but you're, you're, I mean, she she was obviously desperate for, you know, love and, and attention from her sister that she killed her sister's husband because she lost her own husband. I mean, that, I mean, you can follow the story a little bit, but it shouldn't cause you to kill somebody. It's just too easy to say this guy kills himself. Right. And that, but did like he kill himself? No, and that, exactly. But her husband. Is not with her, and so she needs. Everybody wants attention and affection, and and everybody needs some kind of contact from the other humans. She killed her sister's husband because she wanted her sister back because she needed somebody. It's not that far out of reach, but it's it doesn't mean you kill people, right? I mean, I guess the motive could be logical, but <laughs> the fact that you can actually do it. Right, is not, right. Is that not. doesn't mean you execute. It right. just means I'm lonely. I would like my sister back. Go find another friend, asshole. So if you can kill somebody that easily for that kind of a right. reason, it's in my head that you can probably kill other people. And too, I love my siblings. Husband. Well, I love my sisters. I don't talk to one. The other one, not my favorite lately either. I'll find other people. I have other friends that I can rely on or, you know, I, so... There's other people out there. You don't have to kill. So the Bodega Brew Pub, a little bit of a history here. I think that probably could be investigated a little further, maybe. I don't know how well they investigated this in 1901 when Mr. Malin supposedly hung himself from the rafters. But a lot of stuff was speculation. I would uh, maybe not as much. Maybe Lacrosse's cold case unit could uh, could uh, dust off the old files for this one. It might be different people now, and they maybe disregarded those cases. I'm guessing. So you know, the Great River Road has. a lot more of these a lot of them are are pubs a lot of them are saloons that you know have been there through the years that obviously you know loggers were there um, steamboat operators were there you have places like the the big river bar in genoa you have places like the swing inn 
in Ferryville who has a story of a of a sex worker being um, apparently murdered on the front steps, and that how and that bar is now uh, haunted by her. You have quite a number of ghostly appearances along the Great River Road. You also have some cryptids and some uh, just monster type sightings going on along the Great River Road, Mick. And just to paint the picture that this Great River Road along the Mississippi River, which goes a long way as far as the haunting, not even hauntings, as Scott said, but just strange, bizarre situations you don't necessarily find everywhere else. In Wisconsin alone, there's there's stories known as the Flying Mothman in Trempolo, the Lake Pepin's version of Nessie Monster, also named Peppy. Have you seen the Mothman Prophecies, the movie? No. Is it is it based Good on flick. that? Yeah. The Mothman is is like a, a very well-known... It originated in West Virginia. Right. Yeah. That's where the Mothman Prophecies takes place. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the stories somehow elaborated up to Wisconsin. Indrid Cold. So the Mothman, obviously, most people listening that's probably have heard of the Mothman. It's a pretty well-known legend that takes place mostly in West Virginia. And it, you know, it's about the, the December 15th, 1967 collapse of the Silver Bridge, in which 37 people were killed in that. You know, there were lots of premonitions of that bridge going down, and there were lots of sightings about this uh, winged character going around Pleasant Point, West Virginia, in the 1960s. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty well-known legend, mainly happening in West Virginia, but as Mickey said, up in Trempolo, the Mothman has been reported a number of times too, and not only there, you know, up in this area, just in 2017 alone, 55 reported sightings of the Mothman in Chicago. Which is not far from, from Trempolo. I mean, No, really, it's not. Right. It's a short drive. So you That's know, the point. I mean, it's not that far. So it, it makes all this stuff somewhat legitimate, but as we'll speak about later, you have to wonder where some of the, the, where these legends originate and where they drift off to. So as far as other stories along the Great River, first of all, in Wisconsin alone, in Genoa, Wisconsin, there's the Big River Bar and Grill and the Swing Inn in Ferryville, Wisconsin. Then before then, you actually start in Minnesota, the Chase on the Lake, which is in Walker, Minnesota, and the St. James Hotel, which is in Red Wing, Minnesota, goes on to the Wabasha Street Caves in St. Paul. After that, you go into Edinburgh Manor in Scotch Grove, Iowa, and the Stony Hollow Road in Burlington, Iowa. If you continue on along this Great River Road along Mississippi, you have Acid Bridge, which is in Collinsville, Illinois, and the Cairo Public Library in Cairo, Illinois, and the Ghost Tour in Galena, Illinois, which I actually have a friend that's visited that a few times. Along that tour, you go along Missouri, the St. Charles Ghost Tour, the St. Genevieve Ghost Tours in St. Genevieve, Missouri. You go further into Kentucky, the C.C. Cohen Building in Patakaw, Kentucky. Tennessee, you have the Orpheum Theater in Memphis, Tennessee, and the Backbeat Tours in Memphis, Tennessee, the Magnolia Hill Bed and Breakfast in Helena, Arkansas, and St. Francis County Museum in Madison Township, Arkansas. In Mississippi, you have the McRaven Tour Home in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and the King's Tavern in Natchez. And finally, you end up in Louisiana, where the Mississippi actually ends, the Myrtle's Plantation in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and the Witch's Brew Tour in New Orleans, Louisiana, and the Oak Alley Plantation in in Vachery, Louisiana. So this just goes to show that this this river that goes along our entire country and all these stories can go on for the entire trip. Pretty amazing. So these are just highlights of, you know, buildings along the Great River Road from Wisconsin all the way down through Louisiana. 
of places that have been haunted. And, and again, this is because of act hundreds of years, centuries of activities along the Mississippi River. And stories told, not necessarily true or not, but... Sure, it all goes back to folklore. I've, I've heard, you know, you mentioned Myrtle's Plantation before, a uh, very well-known haunted location in America. It's, I've heard that referred to many times as the most haunted house in America. Um, you know, and I don't know, what is the most haunted? I don't even, you know, I guess right. I don't even know what that term means. You know, all we're, comes we're down doing, to speculation. Sure, we're doing the, you know, Wisconsin's most haunted in, in this list. So, right. you know, that is, that term alone is subjective. But, you know, Myrtle's Plantation is something that that is, is you know, it's been on all the TV shows. Very well-known place of being one of the most haunted places in all of America. And that's along the Great River Road. So a lot of history. But the fact that... So many places exist this close to the Mississippi River. That that that's just truth to the whole Great River Road concept and the fact that there's so many places that adhere to this paranormal activity right. or, or just the mystical stories that go along with the road along the Mississippi River. It's it's pretty amazing when you think about all and you break it down. Right. And it's the history of the area and that's why you see lots of so these places. Much on these top 10 haunted lists um, of Wisconsin, which we have just completed, right? So if we go through this... this Imperfection, by the way. You cannot refute it. No. <laughs> so, again, th- this was a compilation of, you know, when, when we look up lists of the most haunted places in Wisconsin, these are the ones that come up the most. The most these popular, are, these are the most... There consistent if we give our opinions on on a lot of these when when we talk about you know the first one we talked about summer wind that's something that we've we've covered extensively on this show and you know i think this is a good example of two things can be true a place can have validity to it in terms of being haunted as we have talked to we've never been there but we have talked to people who have been there who have done investigations there and who believe it to be haunted there's too much history of it being haunted I think, to, to negate. So I would certainly believe that it is haunted and that a lot of the stories are, are valid. However, there's also some stories that are, quite frankly, undeniably not true. You know, going back to the people that lived in the house in the 60s and 70s when they talk about being possessed by English explorers and all, you know, these, these kinds of things. A lot of this stuff was done to sell books. But again, two things can be true. A place can be haunted and a lot of the stories about it can be can be BS. Right. Yeah. Two things can be true in every, in every situation, in any scenario. Sure. People talk a lot about certain places. I mean, it can have a historic, a rich history, and it can also have some paranormal going on, but it can also have a rich history and having had people talk about it, like Riverside Cemetery, where none of it's true. But again, as we mentioned in the first episode of this, the story is as much a part of the history as the truth. That's how people work. The truth is not always necessarily where we delve. People talk about a lot of things that aren't necessarily based on the truth. And it's that history of people's fantasy that makes things what they are a lot of times. And so a lot of these stories are not necessarily true. I, I believe a lot of these stories along the Great River probably are just people. People just want to believe these things that aren't true. That doesn't change the lore of the area. So 
as we've been willing to admit through this entire list, just because we've heard and we've read and we've we've done our due diligence to, to make sure that we've done our research, just because the stories aren't necessarily true doesn't make them less interesting or doesn't make them part of the lore or the history of what we're talking about. No, I agree with that, but I, I do believe that we have a duty as a people that when when some of that lore, which is... That's what it is, which it's is, lore. Which is blasphemy. Right. And we know for a fact that it's not true. And it, it is and bullshit. It, and right. it besmirches a person's name after death. Well, in some in, situations, in regarding, sure. You know, regarding Cape Blood. Right. You know, I think we have a duty to call that out and, yes. and, and end this legend that does nothing but destroy a woman's name. Besmirch, as you said, which is the right term. Right. In those cases, it's not fair to the person who did nothing wrong. And as we admitted, she she was just an amazing person in life. So for her to have these bullshit stories thrown at her after after death because of her name blood it's not fair but on the other hand nobody would know who she is probably anymore well i think that would probably i think she would prefer that tell you the truth well maybe maybe but anybody who's worth their time and research is going to find out that she was a good person so like this is how it might sound ridiculous but when i die i don't have any good stories attached to me so no one's gonna bother and I was a good person. I've been a good person. I've done some good things. I don't have any nasty stories or anything, really. Anything that hasn't hurt me, that's not a big deal. But because of her story and, and people having thought she was a witch and all this st- and murder, they're going to find out that she was a good person. They're still going to talk about her. Whereas I'm just I'm just going to go away. So maybe in a, in a messed up way, in some way, these stories, Stupid stories that came from out of nowhere decades later are going to make people understand that she was a good person. Whereas somebody who was a good person and didn't have all this stuff is just going to be forgotten. So there's something to be said for that too, right? I Uh, look at things differently. Yeah, I I don't, I mean, this is a conversation that can go on for a long time. I don't know. I I think if, if in death, and I don't know what happens in death, I don't know if Kate Blood is somewhere where she knows what's going on or not. I don't know. But if that, but if it is... And that would be me, you know, a hundred years after I died and people were telling stories of me murdering my children with an axe, I couldn't hack that. Right. I would rather not be remembered at all. But for the most part, that. we think after we're dead, it doesn't matter. Well, I don't, I don't, we just did a whole t- three hours of, uh, of it not. So, so maybe she's turning in her grave, but on the other hand, people are still talking about her and hopefully researching her and finding out. All these great things that were said about her in newspapers that made her made it proof that she was a good person. Well, maybe I and, found out she was a good person because of this, and I think that's part of our goal too: is to end those. It's 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 my goal, you know, is to end. It's that, my goal too. That garbage legends about her that you know were made up by teenagers forty years ago. But my and point that is, that does not the, need to be her legacy. Maybe the point that everybody is is looking up these these legends that are not true. They're going to find out the truth, but that's not going to happen to me. So maybe it's good. She's she, Her legend is going to live on, and they're going to find out the truth because they're going to look it up, and we have live in a day and age where you can look that up. Whereas, me, you know, someone who doesn't have that kind of history is just going to be lost. To some degree, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. So moving on to Fairlawn Mansion, which has an interesting history to it. Certainly the the man that built that house deserves a little more scrutiny. Bails on his first family and children with some, with another woman. That woman in, inexplicably winds up dead, and he winds up marrying a much younger housekeeper. <laughs> and then he, he uh, lives out his life with her. So, you know, there's a pattern there 
of um, him leaving people. But, you know, it turned out he lived out a well-rounded life. He's very well regarded today, even in death. His house is now a museum. It's very well thought of. It's well taken care of. And the history of the house does have some aspects to it that could lead to valid hauntings. Uh, People visit that house today. It's a museum. Lots of people say that they see things in that house that are not of the living. So I've never been there. I I do tend to believe that that is a legit haunted house and, and probably deserves to be on this list. And it does call out to the fact that even as a living being, he wasn't necessarily the best human being ever, but his life had interest. He had things going on in his life, and that's kind of part of where the paranormal comes from. So while he wasn't necessarily the greatest man, the history leads to the paranormal. And and it's more believable that way because some of the things he did weren't necessarily the best, and that's, that's where all that stuff comes from. So a lot of this stuff becomes more believable depending on the history of the person that was involved in this particular environment that we're talking about so it makes sense number four we talked about the walker house in mineral point very cool building a lot of various stories going on with that throughout the decades of that being haunted that also has a um, a well-rounded history to it you know parts of that building were built in 1836 so we have many many decades of energies being imprinted in the rock in that building we have uh you know the story of william caffey being executed outside of its doors um even though it was a little further away than what is purported at but you know the the, the stories of that again many many claims of hauntings over decades in that house the owners today dismiss it they don't want to talk about it at all that is certainly their right but I would believe that I've been to this place. I've been outside of it. I did do an investigation outside of the building, caught some interesting things. Um, I would believe that this house is a valid haunting and deserves to be on this list as well. Yeah, and risk history behind it. What about the Sheboygan County Comprehensive Healthcare Center? Yeah, that, you know, Sheboygan County, which I believe was number eight on this list. Again, anytime you're dealing with a building like that where you have decades of mental health negative energy being spent out there i mean this is people that have definite mental issues going on supposedly especially back then i mean that's it was psychology wasn't dealt with the way it is now so and and i don't know that that in somebody that works in mental health i don't know that being mentally ill or being a a quote-unquote lunatic asylum makes you any more valid of a place than any other 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 than the kind of the stigma that it gets. Right. Again, that that was a healthcare facility for uh, 70 years. Thousands of people died there. There was a lot of sadness there. Uh, there's no doubt, I've never been there, no doubt in my mind that that place does have energy manifesting in it today. I think it's been caught by numerous investigators. Craig Naring, who we talked about a number of times on this show, conducts tours there, paranormal tours there, and public ghost hunts. It's been on a lot of the TV shows, and there's a reason for that. But again, as I said when we talked about it, I think it's more well-known, not necessarily for being haunted, but for being a former, quote, lunatic asylum, unquote, that offers Well, and a lot of those hunts. places, because of the, the individuals that are held there, and people with mental health issues are, are a target for these kinds of stories. Sure. I, because they come from a place that are, I mean, they're haunted themselves, essentially, is what it comes down to. A lot of times people with mental health issues or, you know, psychosis, there, there's things that go on in their minds that, that cause them to do things 
that aren't of the norm, which is another strange term that just because of it's of the norm doesn't mean it's the right way. But that's where a lot of these stories would, would come from because people don't understand them. Strange history would come from that. People judge that which they don't understand. So when they hear these stories, they're going to make up stories right. that make sense. And right. That goes back to the stigma of it. And as we, we had spoken about before, it's got a fairly clean history. There's a lot of they were taken care of. A lot of mental health facilities in the mid-1900s, and you, this is well-documented, you can all look it up, were really, really bad. Right. And there's lots of movies and TV shows and stuff which, which illustrate that. They were treated like criminals, yes, essentially. Yes, and that, you know, there's nothing, at least in the record, that says that anything like that happened here. Just because it's not in the record didn't doesn't mean it didn't happen. We understand but that. that. But the people here, by all estimates, they were treated fairly, like like regular people that just had problems that we didn't necessarily understand and that, that that's how, that's how it should be it seems to be yeah and but but again you know back to your original question um because of the facility that it was and because it is so well known and so popular now in pop culture it certainly deserves to be on on the list of the top 10 most well, that's what makes it intriguing to most right. people when it comes to this stuff uh, number five in the list, we talked about Hotel Hell or the Maribel Caves Hotel. And, and this would be closer to the Kate Blood issue, in my opinion. There's really nothing in Maribel Caves Hotel history that we hear of today in terms of the, the, the horror stories that is true. Um, n- none of these that are supposed to lead to the hauntings are true. One of the more famous ones is that it burned three times on the same date, you know, years apart. And on the third the third time, everybody inside was was killed. Not true. The stories that there was a mass murder in there, somebody killed all the guests with an axe. Not true. Um, there were deaths there. You know, there were some suicides there over the years. I mean, it was open for 70 years as a both a hotel and a tavern. So death did happen on the premises, but that doesn't justify all of the legendary tales that is told today that skeletal remains were found inside. Why, why wouldn't they have been cleaned out? You know, n- none of that. Why would it have just been left left there? Right, of course, right. N- Somebody would have come by and stolen it, most likely. You know, they don't just leave it there. People yeah. don't just leave stuff like that there. The portal to hell is <laughs> supposed to be outside, which is now covered with wildflowers. Hotel Hell, Maribel Caves Hotel, was once a very fine, well-known, classy spa hotel that was, uh, you know, known throughout the country and, and did cater to a, a very kind of famous clientele. You know, and a lot of the amenities that it had in terms of the spring water from the caves, and they bottled that, and it was one of the first bottling companies in the nation, really, in terms of bottling water. Um, all that's legit, but other than how the building looks in terms of it looks like a busted-up Austrian castle right now, and it's very cool-looking, ominous building, none of the stories of horror that have happened there that have led to the name Hotel Hell and that have led to the legends today of it being haunted um, are true. So that is another one along with Riverside Cemetery in my opinion that I pretty much scoff at when I see this on on all these lists. Which doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't owned by Capone but again there's not proof in either direction and just because it was if it, if it was owned by him, that doesn't necessarily mean there was things that happened there that would have caused the paranormal to exist later on. That's one of the biggest legends that, that Capone either owned it or um, had a lot to do with it, what was going on there. You know, my opinion of that is, is that place was so well known in its heyday, Capone wouldn't go anywhere near it. Capone, 
Capone was hiding, you know? I mean, it was so not well known at the time. Uh, celebrities from classic Hollywood would yeah, come here. Would that is, that's that? a known fact, you know, that is real. So, the, you Unless know, you want to, as they say, you hide, hide in, in plain sight. Right. You know, I guess I mean, he, may, maybe that was, his, but I don't think that's how he worked. So that makes sense. I think the Capone connection comes from the, the bottling aspect of that building. Um, there's no documentation that he, you know, I'm not going to say he was never there. Obviously, as we talked to before, he was up here all the time. But unless he was hiding in plain sight, it makes sense that he wouldn't right, be there. Right. He, 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 typically, he didn't go to places where everybody else was going. So, you know, Hotel Hell, Maribel Capes Hotel was a fine hotel in its day. Um, doesn't deserve the moniker Hotel Hell and, and probably, in my opinion, needs to be taken off these lists. Uh, number six, we talked about the Fister Hotel. Definitely should be on this list. Right, I mean, it's it's everything it's, I've read, yeah. it's so well known to be haunted by people who you don't normally hear telling haunted stories. You know, professional athletes and being scared of ghosts and stuff. You don't think that they would normally talk about guys that. who don't they don't want to admit they have right. these situations because they're these are macho men who don't want to admit that they've been scared to the point where they're sleeping with a gun or whatever. You know, so. I would assume there is some validity to these stories. I have never stayed at the Fister. I've been inside of it. I uh, have never. So had what are you any... doing next weekend? Oh wait, I'm going to the Buffalo game. Weekend after that, you want to go? It's like four hundred dollars a night. Well, so if it's on you, I'm I'm all on I'm all for it. It can be on me. I'm not paying for it. But you know, sponsors. You know, I I think that this as as well known as this place is, and as well known to be haunted as this place is, definitely think it deserves to be on this list. As does the next one we talked about, Shaker Cigar Bar, which definitely. I'd like to go there with you. We can do I that. I think that'd be a good time. It wouldn't Short cost nearly down. as much as the Fister Hotel. Short drive down the highway, man. Yeah, right. We can stay at the Fister if we win the lottery before that. Shakers. Yep. Mm-hmm. So a uh, lot of really cool history with this building. A lot of it a little bit outlandish, but some of it can actually be documented as true. So th- I think this would also be a, an example of, of two things can be true. It can be haunted, and some of the stories cannot be necessary validated but again really cool history with this building no question in my mind that it is haunted i have been there i have not experienced anything there but certainly something that that we could dive into in the future to validate some of that but shaker cigar bar if you get a chance if you're in milwaukee if you ever go to milwaukee hit this bar up it's i think you'll have a good time whether you meet elizabeth or not right whether you meet molly or not Go to Shaker Cigar Yeah, bar. they're not real anymore anyway. But from what Scott has said, they embrace the history, so it sounds like it's just a cool place anyway. They do quite a bit with it, right? They they uh, they pump it quite a bit. They do ghost tours every single day. So it is part of their business model, no question about it. Um, so it benefits them to pump that history. It has worked for them. And um, they recognize that it could no, work. No doubt about it. But st- even if you're not interested in the paranormal cool place to go see um and then the, the you know the last two number nine door county and number 10 the you know the great river road which we had just talked about uh two areas that are obviously steeped in lots of history lumber history boating history sailing history native history you know we had talked about the warring potawatomi and uh winnebago tribes in door county along the great river road is where a, a lot of the black hawk war happened there in the in 1832 a lot of kind of embarrassing history for the united states in terms of massacres bad acts was uh was right there so you know in my opinion there's a lot of wicked history that would lead to hauntings there today 
A lot of these buildings that we've talked about along the Great River Road, you know, validity to some of them, likely. I can't speak for them. I haven't been to them. There's a lot of destinations. So if nothing else, a lot of states have bought into this history that along along the, the old Miss, there's a lot of things going on paranormal or not apparently there's a lot of people along that river that have believed that there's some stories going on no no question about it and when you think of the centuries that it's been active in terms of of uh, human activity native and european um i don't think there's any question that a lot of these buildings probably because of where they are where they may lay um could lead to valid hauntings no question about it and door county as we said i've been to nelson's great place haunted i don't know is it haunted by me you know by mr nelson still trying to hand out his his bitter shots you know i'm not going to say that that's legitimate a, or not. A, a valid haunting it's a great place you know but it's on every one of these lists that i look at it's always in wisconsin's top 10 hauntings is <laughs> nelson's and in in washington island and i just does it really validate being on every one of these top 10 lists i would say no the history of the place is is very interesting i think it's worth a visit if you're up in the area but one of the top 10 most haunted places in wisconsin um i'm not gonna go i'm not gonna go there other places in in door county no doubt the lighthouses are haunted with residual activity as what we had talked about before no question about it so that's the top 10 list of, of what we had of the most haunted Wisconsin. What did we miss? Did we miss anything? Where have you been that's haunted in Wisconsin that we didn't have on this list? Obviously, as we have talked about, I would have some other places on here. Maybe we'll talk about that at another time. You know, we'll, we'll put together our own top 10 haunted list. Mine would probably be six or seven places would be different. You know, we can even bring up the, we didn't even bring up the two oldest cities in Wisconsin. One is Green Bay and the other one would be Prairie du Chien which was a massive military outpost in the very early 1800s. And, and just centuries of activity in Green Bay, centuries of activity at Prairie du Chien, which is at the confluence of the Mississippi and Wisconsin rivers, centuries of human activity. And, you know, I have no doubt there's ghosts all over the state. Like I said, what, what, what did we miss? What have you had experiences at that we missed? Go ahead and let us know. Find us on social media. Look us up on Facebook. Look us up on Twitter. And, uh, and let us know where have you been that uh, should be on the list of America's top 10 most haunted. But beyond that, it just comes down to things that have happened to people. And I mean, that's what we're always trying to, the the point of everything we're talking about is what people have been through, whether it's true or not. Perception is reality is is what it comes down to. So whether these stories are based on things that people believe as a whole or not, it just comes down to the victims and the people involved. And paranormal is based on what's happened to people in the past, whether it's good or bad. And it just comes down to recognizing what's real or not. And that, that, that's what we're trying to understand if it's based on something that really happened or if there's actual victims involved. And that, that's the whole point of the story. Some people were hurt. Some people were made to have stories about them. It's the victims, as we always try to talk about. The the people that were actually involved in these stories, that's the basis we're trying to pinpoint when it comes to all these stories we're talking about. I think that's the silver lining of the popularity of the paranormal right now. And you, you had alluded to this when we talked about Cape Ludmick, is that it has piqued people's interest in history. So even though they're kind of a lot of a lot of ghost hunters and thrill seekers are trying to find something, you know, that's scaring them. They're still doing research about these places and they're learning about what they were, right? The people at Sheboygan County Asylum right now are being remembered 
because of it's on ghost TV shows, right? So, and a lot of these stories that we talk about, Hotel Hell, Maribel Caves Hotel, even though some of the horrible stories that have been told about it is not true, that would have just probably been lost to history if it wasn't for the, the paranormal aspect about it. And, you know, again, Mickey talked about this with Kate Blood, and there's validity to that. If it wasn't for the uh, false stories that have been told about her for decades, would anybody be talking about Kate Blood at all? Would anybody be talking about the Fister Hotel at all if it wasn't haunted? Obviously, it's a very well-known hotel. It's a fancy hotel, but it's kind of famous for being haunted, right. really. So these stories, especially in this day and age where we have all the access to information right in front of our faces with our phones and computers and technology, and we, we can hear these stories, and whether we believe them or not, we can look into them. And so the victims... Or the, the heroes that they involve can be researched and we can find the truth. And believe me, as we try to research this stuff and we are doing our due diligence to make sure that we find the truth when we do this story. We do not want to give you bullshit. It's hard to find the truth because there's so much out there. That's what the internet offers, everything, whether it's true or not. Try to find the truth and that's all we're trying to do. And, that, and if you do your due diligence as we're trying to do all the time... But if nothing else, we're trying to offer to you that the fact that these stories exist and go out and find out more information and you can find it and you can find the truth if you really try to research and not just believe everything you hear and read. It's out there. It's part of the fabric of who we are. You know, ghost stories are ghost stories. Again, they've been talked about since ancient times and these these folk tales that we hear growing up, um, they, keep, they, are. they keep our history alive. Are they real? Who knows? Do you believe in ghosts? Who knows? It doesn't matter when you look at the big picture that it's keeping the history and the stories alive. They come from somewhere. The stories of the people who came, and this is, this is kind of my goal in life when I write my books and things and the things that I talk about when I give speeches. The people that came before us matter. Right. The things that they left for us matter. Trying to keep the history alive. And they need to be recognized. And if it takes a goofy kind of stupid ghost story to keep their name alive, maybe that's what it takes. But again, we need to embrace our history. One of the unique states in the most unique nation on God's green earth ever is right here in Wisconsin. Our history is as unique as it gets. And when we tell these ghost stories, not we, but when you know we collectively tell ghost stories, we're talking about our heritage, we're talking about our history. Any story, not just ghost stories. So we all need to do our due diligence to make sure that we know the truth about them so we can continue the history that goes along with them, the truth that goes along with them. We're not always going to be able to discern truth from fiction. But again, a lot of times, fiction has its place. It's an homage to those who came before us. Amen, brother. 